I would just like to see all billionaires join the giving pledge. And so billionaires then would get a better ride. John, are billionaires a part of the problem for inequality or are they the solution for inequality? Oh my gosh. And you expect me to answer that intelligently. <laughs> um, look, <laughs> there's always been huge inequality and always will be. When you make massive money out of something like Amazon or Tesla, and I'm not saying those people don't deserve to make that money, but what monstrous inequality. I think those people should be part of the solution for putting back in. In fact, I think all wealthy people ought to be part of the solution for putting back in. That's why I joined the Giving Pledge. It's why I pledged 70%, not just 50%, but 70% of my wealth. It's why I spend most of my life trying to help other people. But not everybody's like me. You know, other people have different values. Some people are just very hedonistic and it's all about personal pleasure. So I'm afraid the billionaires will never be the solution because some of them are very greedy and want their own, you know, just want all their own pleasures and not too worried about other people. But some of the billionaires, and look at, look at Gates and Buffett, you know, yeah. uh, started the Giving Pledge and Bill Gates, as far as I see, spends nearly all his life on charitable uh, work and gives a huge part of his wealth away. So it's wonderful when you've got billionaires like that setting the example and trying to help society and help the inequality. But it is getting worse, and I don't know what the answer to that is. The inequality between the rich and the poor is just growing. That gap is growing and growing and growing, and it's not healthy for society. I don't know what we do about it. We probably start like there's been, I can't remember, it's the G20 summit where they said, um, we're trying to establish a minimum corporation tax of 15% around the world, regardless of anybody's manoeuvrings. And, you know, you've got people like Apple and Google and lots of other companies, Starbucks, virtually effectively pay no tax whatsoever. No corp tax, you mean? No corporate yeah. tax whatsoever. That's disastrous. Mm. You can't have that in a fair society. How can you have that? You know, where the rich just get monstrously richer and the poor are left devastated. And why do you think there is this inequality of wealth? Because I've tried to analyse why. Is it that the ultra billionaires are not getting taxed fairly? Is it because people who know how to make money know how to make money and people who don't know how to make money don't know how to make money? Or is it because the government seem to penalise the small business owner, the middle class, the working class, because they're probably easier to take the money from. Have you got any thoughts on why this gap widens? Yeah, absolutely, because look, let's not take it away from these people. When you create something that is so successful, you've not done it by accident in most cases. In the most cases, you've been amazingly skilled, amazingly talented, and you've put a colossal amount of effort in that nobody else would do. And that's the reason these people are so successful, because mm. they're smart, bright, and put the massive work in. They've also, of course, been in the right time at the right place. You know, I mean, look at how Amazon's worth went up as a result of the pandemic. It was already super successful and super wealthy in the, doing the right business at the right place. But that's all part of the skill as well, mm. recognising what the good business opportunity is and grasping it with both hands. But why isn't there another real Amazon? Well, because... Jeff Bezos just did an amazing job and swept the market away. Not everybody can do that. You know, there's only one Jeff Bezos, only one Amazon. Other people have a go, you know. They, they have their own limited successes, but 
he hasn't really got a proper competitor in that marketplace and uh, a brilliant job. So th there's always going to be this, this great inequality uh, and it's just a fact of life. But it, it is also born by the opportunities of the World Wide Web because the internet has given these opportunities where you can take a business proposition and you can expand it worldwide. Look at social media. You know, you can just take something and something that that 30 years ago might have been almost a backstreet business and you might have been done a, a bit of mail order and advertised mm. in various papers and sold products over the, over, you know, posted out by, by the Royal Mail. You were never going to create something colossal out of that, but the internet has created opportunities beyond anybody's wildest dreams. It's the easiest way of making colossal sums of money. You've still got to have a brilliant idea, you've still got to drive it, you've still got to work hard, but you can make wealth that previously was undreamt of. You built your business, I wouldn't say pre-internet, but you probably didn't have the same luxury of Amazon building phones for you because it was really early internet days. So how did you build a, a multi-billion pound business and how was it different back then to now the internet days? Well, it, it sort of was pre-internet and it effectively because the internet almost had zero bearing on our business mm. whatsoever. Yeah, in a way it was pre-internet days because although the internet was there, it was having no bearing on our business or really anybody else's. I mean, we had the dot-com boom, didn't we, which was a complete fiasco. And that was early adapters trying to find a way of using the internet for huge returns. And of course, they all caught a massive cold, as they would, because the, there was no real substance behind it. Um, in my business, it was all pure to do, purely to do with really hard work and doing things as smartly and shrewdly as possible, delivering great customer service and being really at the value end of the chain, trying to provide the customers with the best possible value that we could, uh, at the same time making money. So I was really uh, a really big volume player. I wanted to provide an unbeatable price, an unbeatable value that was a compelling proposition that enabled me to do volume and scale. You know, an example of that is, the, is all the shops. The shops, your overheads in those shops were phenomenal, as you can probably imagine. I think in Oxford Street, one of our shops, even then 20 odd years ago, was a million pounds a year in rent and rates. And you just needed to put volume through because if you just went for big margins, and, and had 100 customers a week. It was no good at all. We needed thousands of customers to buy off us. So you had to have a great proposition, a great brand, um, great value, great reputation, and then work like fury with the staff that you'd got, get them really highly motivated um, and have great salespeople in those shops so they really captured every customer possible. And to aid with that, the TV advertising, all the marketing, and of course, the, the reputation was really critical. I remember back in the day, getting a phone from one of your shops and you know, you'd upgrade to 30 pound a month and you get the free Nokia, which was like a thousand quid. And then Steve Jobs came along and made you pay a thousand quid for a phone. And it's funny how the phone market completely swi switched that it was about the contract and not the phone. And, now it's about the device. So if you were coming into the phones business now, 
How would it be different for you? Well, I wouldn't come in now. Why not? Well, because the, the opportunities have gone. Right. The opportunities have gone now. In, in those days, the customer paid a fortune for his airtime. Mm. An absolute yes. fortune. <laughs> yes, I remember. You know, if, you, if you brought back to present day value, people were probably paying, I haven't worked this out, but probably paying 200 pounds a month for the line rental with no calls. In London, they would be paying five pound a minute. They even had minute billing. So if you went over the minute by a second, you still paid the five pounds. That, that wasn't the rate then, incidentally. I've just roughly calculated present day value. So f imagine that five pounds a minute, and you go a second over, it's another five pounds. You know, the, the value in mobile phones now in the networks is, is unbelievable value for the customers compared to 30 years ago. But because of that structure, there was a lot of opportunity to build service providers with great value and subsidize the kit. And that's what really got the whole market going because a, a thousand pound phone could be discounted down to 500. Mm -hmm. A 500 pound phone could be almost free. Yeah. In fact, we did give free phones away many, many times and we relied on the airtime uh, money, mm. but the customer was overpaying for that. But he, he was all effectively he was buying his phone on a higher purchase. Yeah. You know, he's having a free phone and paying um, way too much for his calls, way too much for his line rental, and paying back for the phone that way. But that created the opportunities entrepreneurially to do different things, to mix with tariffs, play with tariffs, to put better tariffs in, to put marketing uh, in, uh, initiatives in. Mm. There's not any of that anymore. Yeah. It's a very, very stable, mature market where those opportunities are long since gone. It doesn't mean you can't make a, a good living out of selling mobile phones. Of course you can, but it's not got that opportunity. I, you know, if I went into that today, could I do what I did? No. I would want to go in some virgin territory where there's a new business and it would have to be internet-based, worldwide internet-based, and something that could capture every man, woman and child on the planet to be part of. And then if you do it right, what you've got is something colossal, not just something that's in your backyard. Mm. So when you have something colossal that's global, like you had with your phones business, there must be downsides to that. I don't think a lot of people have got the stomach to be Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos with lawsuits every day and millions of haters on social media. So do you have to have a certain stomach to be an entrepreneur of that size? Um, well, I had a huge amount of stress in growing that business, a huge amount, but it wasn't, there was no social media really in those days, you know, and so it wasn't from haters or anything. It was just huge stress trying to make the business work, managing employer, employees, managing uh, suppliers, managing customers, and trying to balance all of that because my, my suppliers actually became my biggest challenge because they'd want me to grow their market share. I'd grow their market share, and when I grew it to a certain level, they said, the tail is wagging the dog. And when the tail wagged the dog, that was their way of saying I'd got too much power, all they wanted to do was cut your power. So what they did was then manipulated you, grew a competitor to you, gave you worse prices and then better prices and just really limited your, your ability to perform. So you'd done this great job of growing their business, grown it enormously, and then all they wanted to do was damage you for that, 
for do, being too successful. Mm. That kind of takes us back full circle because we talked about billionaires and let's use Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Steve Jobs. You know, right now, in, certainly in the UK media, billionaires are getting a hard rub there. We shouldn't have any billionaires. No one needs to have a billion pounds there. Um, but all the sacrifices they make, you know, all the risks that they take, putting everything on the line, do you not think that that reward is fair for the risk that they take and the stress they put themselves under? I can't answer whether it's fair or not. I just think it is what it is. Right. And, and if you're good enough and brilliant enough to do that, then you've achieved it. I would just like to see all billionaires join the giving pledge. And so billionaires then would get a better ride. I would like to see billionaires respected and admired like they are in America. I'd mm -hmm. like to see everybody aspiring to be wealthy. Uh, not that wealth's the number one goal in life. I, you know, for me, uh, what I taught my children is the only thing that really matters is being happy and leaving the world a better place than you found it. And that's the real goal in life. But for those that have got wealth as a real goal, then fantastic, they should be inspired and aspire to do that. Um, but I do believe then when they've made the money, uh, they really ought to think about how they can benefit society and make the world a fairer place. Mm. But, you know, not you everybody's think, going to think that way. Do you think maybe a lot of them are? They're just maybe not advertising it? Well, I think, I think uh, generally the people that are not advertising are not doing it. Right. Generally. That's not to say there aren't one or two private people who are doing it yeah. and just don't want the advert. But I don't understand not wanting the advert because there's two things about, one, about having the advert. One is you inspire other people to follow suit. Mm. So I stick my head above the parapet as much as you like. And if people say, oh, he's just after praise, well, I don't mind the praise. I don't mind people admiring me for the charity work that I do because I'm proud of it. You know, like I was proud of building the business. I don't mean, mind being admired for that at all. I don't need privacy, but equally important, I want to inspire other people of wealth to do the same thing. We had a dinner last night inspiring people to join our Life Changes Circle to help uh, all these children that we help in the UK that are desperately, desperately ill who can't get the help that they need. And, I, and that's my job, to inspire other people. I can't inspire my other people just by giving somebody 10 million and never saying anything about it. So what I do, uh, I do shout about it. I, I try not to do it in such a way that it's crass or self, you know, seeking admiration. I don't do that. What I'm seeking is to influence other people to follow my lead. Mm. And, and if every billionaire on the planet followed my lead, or it's not my lead really, it's Bill Gates' lead. If everybody did that, the world would end up being a very, very different place. Mm. So I'd like to talk about a lot of your charity work a bit later. Um, I still want to chase this tax distribution because I'll just be honest, I'm really frustrated with it. I'm frustrated that the startup entrepreneur and the small business owners corp tax has gone up 19, what will be 25%. Yeah, Amazon and Apple are virtually paying none. Although I don't begrudge them because they create millions of jobs and revenue. In the last recession, VAT was reduced. VAT hasn't been reduced this time round. National insurance has gone up a, a decent amount. Like, I worked out all in. I believe income and expenses. We could be paying up to 70 pence in the pound in tax. It seems so unfair. 
What's your thoughts on the tax system and if it's fair and, you know, are Conservative the low tax party we think they are? What do you think? Well, there's a lot of questions right I know, there, sorry. The, I normally the, do one at a time. The but. first thing is I'm <laughs> pragmatic. What can you do to change things? Now, is the tax fair? Probably not. But what can you do about it? Now, if you try and tax the rich, they'll go to Monaco. And I've got a place in Monaco. I love living there. I don't live there. I live here. I love the UK. I'm patriotic and I pay my taxes here. No plan for that to change. It could do one day for some reason because, you know, I do enjoy all the cycling from Monaco and so on. So the point being anyway, it's not a hardship moving to Monaco and then you pay no tax. I would never do it for that reason alone, but that's, uh, you know... Did you not say if Labour came in and put the taxes up, you would? No, I didn't quite say that. I've been misreported. Okay. And I'll tell you precisely Mm. what I said, because it was not that at all. What I said was, and I said this to John McDonnell on Radio 4, on an interview, I said, what I'm not going to do is stay here under a Labour government and be despised and be robbed of all my money at the same time. Mm. If you want to admire me and say, look at John Cordwell and look at these other rich people, they've made a massive success, you need to go down the route they are going down and they pay a lot of tax and they pay more than the fair share of tax because they're helping society, then I'm happy with that. But if you're gonna say no billionaire should ever exist, Billionaires are despicable, despisable creatures. Oh, and by the way, we want 60% tax off you. Well, it'll be two fingers to them. I don't know whether you're all right with two fingers on your... But, more but than happy. More than happy. Well, They'd give f- them three it, if it you would be, No, but it would be, because yeah. why would you stand back yeah. and be robbed by somebody who despised you? <laughs> if they love you... I mean, that's what I'd be doing if I was Labour. I'd be saying, look, we love billionaires, we love you all, but we want you to pay more tax. So please stay in the UK. Please make society fairer. Please pay more tax. You know, and they, they, of course, a lot of them wouldn't. A lot of them still leave. But yeah, no, I never said solely. I mean, there is a threshold, though. You know, just for clarity, even if they loved me, there is a threshold <laughs> at which... What is that threshold? I don't know. I don't know, and I hope I'm never tested on it. But if you want a number... And this is a bit irrelevant because nobody else would swallow this number. And so if they won't swallow the number, they'll go. So we can't do it. But I think I might live with 60%. All in? Uh, income tax. Wow. I think I might live with Even that. after the corp tax and everything else? Well, that's down to your tax planning and the way you structure and, and how many, you know. I mean, if, if you're uh, earning that money out of your corp, out of your corporation, that money then is not paying corporation tax because it's a wage. So then you pay the income tax on the wage. Uh, I could probably live with that. I wouldn't like it, but you know, it's a bit irrelevant because everybody else would leave. Mm. So it's not, it's not doable. I'll tell you what I would really like, the way that, and I can't remember if it's the G7 or G20, but the com- countries that agreed on a 15% minimum corporation tax. If we could have a world where every single country agreed on certain criteria, to take money from the rich in a fair way, in a reasonable way, that would be a wonderful step forward for society, either by corporation tax or some sort of wealth tax. A wealth tax is tricky though, because for a long time I had no money. It was all in the value of the company. So you've got to be careful with wealth taxes that you don't tax 
calculated wealth that this person can't afford to pay. Or unrealised gains like they're talking yeah. about, it's outrageous, aren't Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, you can't do that because you put people into crisis. Mm. It's a bit like when these family estates get passed down, you know, and they want to, it's been in the generation forever, and then suddenly there's a great big inheritance tax bill and it's just taking off the people. Mm. Um, you know, we have to have a fair society all round. But certainly if corporation tax globally were 40%, What's wrong with that? You know, there's 60% left for profits. Plenty of profit there to distribute towards shareholders. Once that was the norm, we'd have a different society. And the whole of the world would be better off in terms of looking after poor, disadvantaged and ill people. Mm. And we'd have a much fairer world. What I can't stand is these corporations that pay no tax. I mean, I've said to people for a long time now, and I even put it on social media a long time ago, when you buy an Apple phone, you are damaging society and damaging people because they are paying zero tax or it's virtually zero tax at that time. And when you buy an iPhone, all you're doing is damaging the world. And everybody was buying iPhone. A few people responded positively and said, I will never, but I didn't know that. I will never, ever buy another Apple product. Most people ignored it. And some people said, ah, yeah, but the brilliant product, so I'll always buy it. And I understand all three reactions really, you know, but just imagine, and I did ask them to boycott Apple and Starbucks and so on. Imagine if the public, when Starbucks were paying no tax, and I don't know what they're doing now, but when they were paying virtually no tax, imagine if the public always walked past the Starbucks shop and they were boycotted completely. Starbucks would be running to the Inland Revenue and say, please, have this money, have this money, because we'll be bankrupt tomorrow. Yeah. You know, but society won't join forces and join in a common fight for good. Mm. And so... People have almost only got themselves to blame because they value the cup of Starbucks coffee more than they value a fair society. Mm. I still can't get my head around why, for example, Shell just announced triple profits from this quarter to last year's quarter. They made nine billion when we're in a fuel crisis, mm. when there is, you know, fuel poverty. And yet there doesn't seem to be any windfall tax or any tax imposed upon them. You're talking about these big companies that get away with paying any tax. But they really do hammer the small business owner, I think. You've got to think about the small business owner. Because I think they need support, John. They do need support. Who else is supporting it? They do need support, but I I think overall they get reasonable support. I'm not not as vehement against it as you are, but, but... Small businesses need encouraging. What I'm, what I'm more concerned about... By the way, I've really, got other questions. I will move on from this. What but. I'm more concerned about, really, is the, the fact that a lot of people fell between the cracks on the COVID support packages, and there was three million excluded. I don't know the rights or wrongs of each and every individual case, of course, mm. but I know there were cases amongst that, and maybe not three million, but a lot of cases where they really ought to have been supported and deserved help and they didn't get it. And they're all very bitter about that. Mm. And I understand that. Um, And then on the other side, the five billion they've had to write off that's probably been pilfered away. Sorry, what's that five billion? Well, I think the government wrote off five billion in COVID loans they couldn't get back because it oh, lent yeah, them always, to the wrong people. Yeah, that, that's always going to happen. Right. I mean, you look, that said 500 billion. Yeah. You know, it's it's small beer. I mean, it's a lot of money, mm. but look at the money that was got wasted 
on PPE. Look at that. That was what, 11, 12? I think it was a lot more than that. Yeah. Um, and that's was, a right all off. Staggering. But anyway, yeah. that, that's sort of t besides the point, really, isn't it? I, I think I think the only way... Well, the thing way... is, they keep getting away with it, though, because people like us well, say, I'll move on. Yeah, but governments always will because they're incompetent. Right. And it's a bit more of my pragmati pragmatism. Yeah. Where are you going to get a, com a government that's competent? Where? You know, all you can do is choose the... So is that like us accepting incompetence, then? Well, we do. We do, and there's no answer to it. Mm. You find me where you're going to get a competent government. Mm. Occasionally, we get sort of little sort of glimpses of competency. You know, and, and this government have been very competent in some ways, but the furlough scheme, I mean, a lot of the measures put in on, on COVID were, in my opinion, completely wrong. Needed to be very, very differently done. Like which ones? Oh, gosh, where do you want me to start? Well, we're in your house, well, so wherever let's, you want. Well, let, let's start with the bounce back loan. Yeah. Because the bounce back loan originally was launched where 20% of the equity had to be provided by the business to the banks and the government had guaranteed the other 80%. I had a long conversation with Rishi Sunak on a Wednesday night saying that's impossible. Nobody will have 20%. Not nobody, but effectively nobody mm. because, you know, the banks will want proper solid security. A lot of people will already have their equities locked up with the banks anyway. Those biz businesses that are expanding phenomenally will have everything locked in, in that business. And those businesses that are struggling will be the same sort of situation. So where are these banks going to get the 20% from these businesses in order to justify the loan? I said, it'll be a catastrophe. Anyway, um, on uh, the Monday morning, he changed it to a 100% to guarantee from the government. So that got changed. So credit to Rishi for that. But the furlough scheme, I always advocated that uh, nobody should be substantially worse off as a result of COVID than they were uh, prior to COVID. But we made people substantially better off. Monstrous miscalculations where we paid too high a percentage and we made them have the whole time off. They couldn't work two days and have three days furlough. They had to have the all or nothing. And then they were even allowed to go and work for somebody else but not the current employer. What nonsense is that? Mm. You know, and I advocated that what people do is declare on the PAYE, which everybody, virtually everybody had got, a declaration by the em employee and the employer on the PAYE that says, I've taken eight furlough days this month. And this would be a criminal offence if they, if they misrepresented it because it would be fraud and they stated how much they were claiming, and they did that through the PAYE scheme, which is already in place. It would have saved the country billions and billions and billions, but equally, it would have stopped this ridiculous overspending that we've had since the end of COVID, where all these people flush with money because they weren't spending the money during COVID and they were overpaid by the government, suddenly come into the marketplace, into a marketplace that's starved of supply because all the manufacturers de-stopped during COVID and create monstrous inflation. And of course, I know there's other reasons for the inflation, so I'm not blaming all on that. You know, we've got the energy prices, we've got the Ukraine, we've got lots of reasons for the inflation, but it was already massively inflationary because people were coming into the market with a load of money and no product. And is that my sign too? It is. No, 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 oh, you're okay. Sort of. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I feel some pressure now you're here. No, no, you're, you're under no pressure. Chill. No, I'm just joking. Chill. 
No pressure is the darling. <laughs> a lot of them. <laughs> so what do you think the real economic impact of COVID's been? Oh, colossal in lots of ways. Colossal in terms of mental health. Colossal in terms of pent-up physical health that's not been attended to. Colossal in terms of the deaths that we've had that uh, a lot of which would not have happened at that time. Some would because a lot of the deaths, of course, were people who were at the end of life anyway and very ill, but, you know, tragic situations. So all of that. And then the financial cost immense because what, we, what we've done is cost the government balance sheet 500 billion with nothing to show for it. And in addition, we've bred a society that thinks they can just stay at home and in some cases have an easy life at home. I don't say that about all people. Some people are conscientious, but some people are lazy. As we know, you know, we've got all different types of people in society mm. and most people need to work in the office to be properly inspired, to have a bit of social life in the office and to be motivated and to do a great job. Some people can work from home effectively and that's fine for them. So the cost overall has been beyond words. And therefore, would you have not had lockdowns? Ooh, that, you know, that, that's, a tricky situ that's a tricky question. I would have tried to handle it totally differently. I would have, uh, right at the very beginning, when I realised how dangerous this initial strains of COVID were, I would have tried to lock down all the nursing homes and people in care homes. And I'd have, what I would have tried to have done was to make all their staff locked down and probably put caravans on car parks where all the staff lived. I'd have paid them double wages for giving up the life and their entire life would be non-social. It would be going to the care home, looking after, coming back to the family at home. Um, it might just be a husband you know, at home and no outside contact for the period of crisis and tried to contain it that way to stop that huge ramp up in deaths and try, try to solve it that way and let the rest of us who are identified as able-bodied and fit um, fight it off and live a normal life and we get COVID and we become immune. I don't know whether people know this but the natural immunity is 13 times more powerful than, than covid uh, vaccinations. Why were we all mandated vaccinations then? Well, because it saved us dying in some cases. You know, the, the problem is you don't really know who's going to die. You've got a good idea. I mean, my regime has exposed myself to COVID. I don't mind. I'm perfectly happy with it. I take vitamin D, vitamin C, K2 um, and zinc. They're all very beneficial for defending your body against COVID and other illnesses as well. And if it gets me... Yes, I could die, but it's a very, very, very tiny chance of dying because I'm healthy, fit, and I'm taking the right supplements. And we should have been out there carrying on with society whilst protecting the old and the vulnerable. And if we could identify, as we could, people with diabetes and so on who are vulnerable to COVID, then what we do is try and find a way of isolating those people from society while the rest of us go out and fight it. And what would have happened was we would have had deaths amongst people that were deemed to be not really at significant risk. We would have had that, but we've had it anyway. Mm. You know, we've had it anyway. 
and what we've had is massive deaths, massive damage. I mean, look at, look at the health service now. Unless we doubled the health service uh, budget, we're never going to catch up with all those people. There's going to be young mothers of two children or three children who are dying of breast cancer because they didn't get the attention when they should. So, you know, and look what we did with, you know, people might say, yeah, but the hospitals were saturated. Well, yes, they were, but in a way they weren't because the Nightingale hospitals never got, never got used. Now, it's a balancing act, so I can't be equivocal about this because you would get to the point that even though you've got the Nightingale hospitals and you fill those up, you run out of medical staff. So it wasn't a simple challenge facing the government, but I would have definitely tried to do things differently in mm. the way that I've just suggested. It may or may not have worked, but it would be a step in the right direction. And we would have had less people in intensive care anyway because we'd have protected all the vulnerable, massively protected the vulnerable, and let the rest of us go about our work. Mm. I'm tempted to keep chatting about this, but let, let's um, change the, the tack a little bit. Well, chat if you've got a challenge to me, because I like challenges. Okay. Have you got a challenge to what I've just said? Um, the thing is, I mostly agree with you. Good. So I haven't got, okay, I, I can't, I would challenge you if I had one. No, absolutely. But I good. mostly agree. Well, actually, I'll say what I was going to say then. So why did they put us in second lockdown and why did they do a third soft lockdown? And why did they ruin all those businesses that do all their trade over Christmas? Why? That, to me, that seems so wrong. Well, you know, I, I think one of, the, one of the problems with the way all governments have handled lockdown is that the Chinese started it off with this complete isolation. And as it rolled through, everybody took the same action. And there's safety in numbers, isn't there? If, if the Conservative government do the same as the Italians, the same as the Spanish, the same as the blah, 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 blah. Mm. Well, I say we're all handling it. We're doing new, nuances of difference, but effectively that's what we're all doing because that's the right action. And I think they were a bit trapped, really, even if they didn't believe in it, they were a bit trapped. That, if they didn't do that and they got deaths, the deaths would be blamed on the way that they handled it. I think they were in a no-win situation, really. You know, What would I have done if I was Prime Minister? I'm not really sure, but I would have tackled it in the way that I've just suggested right at the very beginning and tried to isolate all the vulnerable people. I'd have probably issued free vitamins because we know vitamin D and zinc and, and C mm. and K will protect against COVID to varying degrees in each case. You know, we know that people with severe illnesses like diabetes or heart trouble or breathing difficulties were going to be more vulnerable. I'd have tried to find a way, and I'd, I would have spent tens of billions solving that. And I would have had care workers who became out of this significantly wealthier, given up some of the life, but significantly wealthier. But actually then we all gave up some of the life, created mental illness and created all these problems in society that are now hang up from the COVID days. Mm. Do you think this could cause a big recession or even a depression? Well, I was always for, forecasting a recession as a result because the, uh, the, 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 the government um, printing all this money and putting all this money into people's pockets was going to cause people to come out as it has, spend a load of money, and then the money runs out. And then you're back into this boom and bust. It effectively, the government effectively created, unwittingly created a boom by putting too much money in people's pockets at a time of shortage of supply. So that was in a way good for the economy because it got it fired up again, but it didn't get it fired up with real jobs, with real created wealth. It got it fired up with a 500 billion detriment to the government's balance sheet. Mm.
And why aren't the government incentivizing production, fueling the economy with growth, employment, you know, R&D budgets and support for Absolutely. people to start creating things? Well, you probably don't know, but I launched Cordwell Pandemic Recovery. Mm, I do, yeah. Oh, you do? Mm. Cordwell Pandemic Recovery, uh, which I call CPR, yeah. which was quite a nice take on the revival. Better than Bill Gates' germ. Did you see that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was a take on revival of the economy, mm. revival of life, you know, CPR. And, uh, and my CPR was four packages. 500,000 new world-class apprenticeship schemes for young people coming out of school to really give them a real positive future and to be able to invest in Britain's future. The second one to it is to attract inward investment all from all over the world into Britain by creating enterprise zones and some degree of tax benefits or whatever it is, whatever incentive we need to do to capture new industry into mm. Britain. Um, the third one was to build our infrastructure because our infrastructure is really poor. You know, broadband and fiber optics, it's quite poor in a lot of places. I've only just got it in here actually uh, recently. Um, so infrastructure, uh, and the final part, which was my real no-brainer must-do, was an energy and environmental city, a brand new city, where everybody who lived in that city was to do with the environment and the saving of the environment in terms of industrial application. So anything that we could see, whether it's building wind turbines and photoelectric cells, whether it's recycling plastic into products like building houses from them, whatever it was, we incentivized people from all over the world to create the environmental Silicon Valley of the UK. So that we really, and it's a 10 year product project minimum, so that everybody who lived there was thinking environment, everybody there was working towards a product or a technology, or a set of practices that were really going to be great for the environment. And in 10 years' time, we'd be exporting that all over the world, both in terms of products and in, in technological expertise. And Britain would be booming, and we would have done a great job in helping to save the crisis that's coming upon us way quicker than I think most people even begin to imagine. I hope I'm wrong in that, but I don't think I am. Mm. I, I even think that it may be utterly unstoppable what's going to happen. And I said that when 20 you years it, ago. What's it? Environmental catastrophe. Right. And I forecast that 20 years ago. Really? I was starting to write a book on it. And then I gave up because it was too depressing. So I've lived my life in a bit of a, you know, head in the sand because I'm pretty certain what's going to happen. What's uh, going to happen? Well, I don't know which way it's going to happen, but if you look at where we are, we've got a crisis of water shortage. We've got a crisis of arable farmland. We've got a crisis of rising sea level, a crisis of changing weather patterns. And when you put all those crises together, what you're going to get is starvation, massive reduction of water supply for people. So yeah. all of these environmental factors going to mean we're going to get great human disruption and great human grief. What will that transpire? Well, what happens when communities or countries are under pressure? What happens? Civil unrest or international unrest, wars. I mean, look, look at what Putin's doing. He's done that for nothing. Imagine what Putin would do if he was starving to death. You know, there's no end to what will happen. Right. So my forecast 
is very, very grim for the world, no matter what we do, because we've left it way too late. But that doesn't mean we should stop fighting, mm. because I might be wrong. And in any event, we have to fight. We've only got one world. We have to fight, and we're not doing it. And when I pushed us, this to the government, Boris said, well, we're spending 80 million on wind turbine. What? You know, and, and I am a fan of Boris's in many respects, although I'm a critique as well, but I just look at the Conservative government with fairness. You know, I'm a supporter of them, but there's a lot they could have done a lot better. And we need this energy city. We need to take it seriously and really put huge effort in for the world, but also for our economy. Because then we'd have the most phenomenal exportable industry in 10 years' time and insulate ourselves from oil, from gas, and from the environmental threat to an extent. So, John, you've pledged 70% of your wealth you're going to give away. Um, I'd love you to talk about um, what charities you're involved in and what charities you've set up and what, what drove you to do that. Um, well, first of all, I had this peculiar vision as a young kid of six or seven that I was going to be driving around in a chauffeur-driven Rolls Royce giving five-pound notes out to poor people, winding the window down and giving these five-pound notes. <laughs> and I don't know why, but clearly the Rolls Royce chauffeur-driven was the wealth and the giving the five-pound notes out was the charity piece. And... That just lived with me. It was like, um, I don't know where it came from, but it was like indelibly imprinted in my brain. So the making the money was the first bit that I had to achieve. Um, and when I did that, I realized that I hadn't fulfilled the other part of this childhood vision. So I started giving my five pound notes out. And, and when I sold the business, I, I sold the business partly, a lot of reasons why I sold the business, but one of the reasons was to do more with char on charitable work because I A, didn't have time and B, didn't have any spare money because all the money was in the business. So by selling the business, I could free up time and money and end up doing a lot more for charitable causes. So I'd love to talk about those causes just quickly because it was a question. What are those other reasons for selling the business? Was it mid-2000s? It was 2006. Yeah. In 2002, I forecast a big recession in the UK. There were lots of reasons for forecasting that recession, and it was inevitable. I thought it might happen a bit quicker than it did. And of course, when the recession came, it wasn't just a UK recession, it was the world economic collapse. But the recession was going to come to the UK no matter what. Um, it's just that this world financial catastrophe came and it was much more serious. So anyway, uh, a UK recession, but probably equally or even more importantly, because you can trade through a recession, but was the consolidation of the mobile phone market where it was getting into the maturity phase, where money was being taken out left, right and centre, networks were being legislated against to give cheaper and cheaper deals to the customer, the customers getting much better value deals. And that consolidation meant that there were going to be big losers. And my business could have been one of those big losers. As it transpired, it wasn't till later, much later years, because it really prospered post my sale uh, from 2006 to, I think it was about 2014, when it collapsed as a result of what I called collusion. Um, so it was th those reasons that uh, I felt that I could probably work for the next 10 years in that business and be even worse off, not better off. Right. 
Um, so that family, wanting to spend more time with family, wanting to fulfill more of my own personal ambitions, and wanted to do more charity charity work and uh, have the time and money. Mm. And how much did it sell for? Uh, 1.5 billion, mm. just to be in it, mind you. 1.5 Nothing if you say it quietly. <laughs> Nothing compared to Bezos and Gates and Co, is it? But, uh, still good. It's still not bad. Yeah, right? yeah. It's still not bad. Did the illness of your son inspire some of your charity work? No. No, not at all. The charity work was inspired long before he became ill. Right. Um, I don't really need inspiration to do charity work. I, uh, I just feel it. You know, it's like when Putin invaded the Ukraine, I immediately looked how I could help refugees out and took some refugees in straight away. In here? No, in, uh, up in my home in Staffordshire. Yeah. So we've got a mother and son living with, living with us up there. Yeah. And uh, I just naturally love helping people. It's, it's in my nature. It's, uh, it makes me feel good about myself. You know, it gives me pride in myself. You know, making money is wonderful. And it, it, it's a skill and it's, it's sort of be, to be admired. But in a way, it's probably not as much as to be admired as doing something for other people. Mm. And that is much more spiritually satisfying than making money. So I still enjoy making money. You know, it gives you a buzz. And my development across the road, I hope, is mega successful. Um, and, and it will be. But it's still not as exciting and inspirational for me as changing children's lives and to, and helping a kid who's got no life to have a much better life or even in some cases cured. Mm. And would you say the desire to help drives the desire to make money so that you can help more? There is definitely an element of that. You know, I, I really um, would like to leave as much as possible to charity. It'll go into a foundation and my children and family members will all be trustees so the more the more I leave to those family members to uh, do, and I've set it, I've got a set of wishes of what they need to do, and it's very demanding because they used to need they need to use my money to leverage other people to help really worthwhile causes to transform people's lives in whatever shape or form. Hmm. Um, so that's the generalised set of wishes. But the more I can leave, the better. If it's a billion, two billion, ten billion, ten billion is better than one. Mm. So the more I can leave into that foundation, the better. Mm. So you've got the John Caldwell Blaze Your Own Trail Award. <laughs> yeah. um, I, um, I support the Princess Trust a lot. I have my own foundation called the Rob Moore Foundation to help young and underprivileged people start meaningful businesses that change the world. So uh, there's a, a big affinity here. But I'd love to hear about the Blaze Your Own Trail Award. Well, it's only, you know, it's only actually a small part of what I do, of course, but it was sort of an important part that came along because, you know, I'm very supportive of young entrepreneurs. They're constantly asking me to be mentored, but I can't, I've got no time, mm -hmm. you know, and I can't, I can't take even one person under my wing because I don't have the time to do that. <clears throat> and I have to do things that help thousands, not just help individuals. So many a time I think, oh, do you know, I wish I could do that, but I can't. Mm -hmm. So I have to say no. But this, this award is just to recognise somebody who's doing a great job of building their business. So uh, it's a small way of me, um, I, I suppose, just adding that extra bit of recognition and motivation to entrepreneurs who are doing great things. Mm. Should we do a quick fire round? A quick who? A quick fire round. 
What's that? Uh, short question, short answer. Right, so you want me to answer as quickly, as sh in as few words as possible? Yes. I'll try. Yes. Um, there are it always depends on whether straightforward the question is. Okay, well, look, I, I'm not happy to stay here all day, but I think you'll kick us out first. Yes. Go ahead. Um, can anyone be rich? No. Why not? Hang on, that, you said a short, <laughs> you said a fire no. Yeah, but this is my second question. <laughs> okay. I've got a few. Second question, because not everybody has the, quali has the qualities and the, the abilities that they need. And what are those abilities you need to be rich? Ambish, ambition, drive, passion, resilience, commercial intellect and leadership. This is going good. <laughs> they asked me to be brief. <laughs> What's the best investment you've ever made? Best investment I have ever made? Uh, well, the, the simple answer really is that all of my wealth has been really created out of my efforts at building the business and the company. And so the best investment I ever made was just investing in that because I turned nothing into 1.5 billion, so you don't get a much better investment than that. But uh, um, I mean, there are one or two investments that I would say quite good. I, I may, I don't think it's a very interesting answer, really, because I don't think I've got anything particular. What were you looking for on that? Just your answer. I'm never looking know, for anything well, other than yeah, your I answer. I don't really think I've got. This is why I love doing this because it's very any investment I've ever made is relatively unimportant in the scheme of things, you know. Mm. I'm investing in art at the moment, that's good investment. But I, I don't think it's sound, it's not very, not a very impressive answer, so. Um, it is what it is. Yeah, it is what it is. Yeah. No, I am, I am, I am. Right, I'll give you the answer. So the answer is, I'm not sure I've ever made a really fantastic investment, except in my own business. Mm. What's the best advice you've ever received? A long time ago, and I remember this very, very clearly because it was right at the beginning of building my business and I couldn't find any decent people. And I was at a young president's organization event where one, the guest speaker was talking about building your business and so on and so forth. And I asked him, how would you get great talent? And his answer was very, very simple, pay the money. And I came back and looked at my organisation. <laughs> and look not, at my business partner You're not there. getting paid properly. Oh, no, no. It's just, he likes cheap. He always no. likes cheap, Mark does. Um, so, <laughs> Pay them, so I came back to the business and I thought, I've got to have these new people. What impact does it have on the rest? So I got my people together and I said, I'm going to advertise this position now. And I'm going to increase the wages massively. I said, don't feel this is unfair. Don't feel this is wrong because if that person doesn't deliver to the expectations, he won't be with us. If he does deliver to the expectations, but I think you're as good as him, your pay will rise in sync. So there will be a fair outcome, but I need to recruit somebody who's stunning to help me grow the business. And I will then rebalance if it's not fair. Mm. And I did that, and that was the start of booming. It's probably the only bit of advice I've ever had that I thought was really good. It's very simple. You know, and the, and the, and the fact is, and this is not a short answer, is it? But the, the, the fact is very simply that paying the right, paying the top money won't get you the best person. What it will do is get you the possibility of getting the best person. Mm. You could still get monkeys that you could have paid peanuts for, and you're actually paying a fortune for, and <laughs> you have to not do that. You know, eliminate the monkeys, but if you're going to pay top dollar, you've got a chance mm. of getting that top man who's going to make a big difference. Mm. What's the worst advice you ever received? 
from my solicitor, who was a family solicitor going back generations. Uh, and when I was about 19, 20, I told him I wanted to uh, try and rent, try and buy a house and rent it out. And he said, oh, dreadful, never get into rental. He said, blah, blah. And he, he just coated every suggestion I had with an absolute black despair. And uh, and he did put me off momentarily because, you know, he, I was young, inexperienced. He was old, very experienced. But I realised he was just a doomsday guy, you know, and uh, it was dreadful advice. But he, he could have cloaked it in a different way and say, look, yeah, do it, but beware. Mm. There's challenges and difficulties that you could have with this. So be careful the way you do it. Be careful, you know, every bit of advice. I do the same when I'm... Uh, when people say, do, should I go into business? I say, look, first of all, six critical success factors, ambition, drive, passion, resilience, commercial intellect, and leadership. Analyze thoroughly how much of each one of those you think you've got. Analyze how much you really want it. Are you prepared to sacrifice your life if things go wrong and you've got to fight like fury? It could cause a divorce, it could cause misery. If the answer to that is you really want it, and you're really prepared for all of that, and you've got those qualities, yeah, do it, go flat out. But I'm not one of these that say to people, oh yeah, business, wonderful, it's great, get get involved, you can do it. Because a lot of people can't do it. Mm. Nine out of 10 new businesses go under and cause the, 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 the founder tremendous grief in some cases. So it's not for everybody. Mm. What's your biggest failure? My biggest failure was to be taken in by one person who became a business partner who I really believed in, who caused mayhem and destruction and caused me to be invested in certain investments that uh, could have been good but weren't. And the whole thing just was a fiasco part of my life. And... Uh, I think most people would have been taken in. I think, you know, I don't beat myself up too much about it, but I was taken in and I shouldn't have been. What would you say is your greatest legacy? Oh, without doubt, um, bringing up my children to be humanitarian, kind, reasonably happy and have the same values and beliefs that I've got and, and luckily up to yet none of them gone wrong in any way you know all all my children I admire and that's my greatest legacy and what they do with that legacy in the future in the John Caldwell Foundation to make the world better in various ways. What's the most money you ever made in a day? Oof. Well it's relative that question is relative. The most money I made in a day is relative to how much wealth I had. But in the early days of uh, cell phones, I found lots of different ways of entrepreneurially creating opportunities. And some of those opportunities, when I had relatively small wealth, made me two or three hundred thousand pounds in one go. And that's against perhaps a net wealth at the time, if you valued the business and everything, maybe of. 10, 20 million, so making 300,000 in one day as a percentage of my calculable net wealth was quite big. Mm. Uh, and I would say 
that, that. I mean, since I've made much more money in a day, of course, many, many times, but that was the biggest relative victory. Mm. Who would you say you most admire and why? Um, Nelson Mandela, because he went from being a terrorist for the right reasons, if you could use those that sentence, but, you know, the apartheid black oppression in those days of South Africa was absolutely catastrophic, a dreadful regime. And, um, and although he was deemed a terrorist, he went to jail, he served his time, he came out, became president and treated the whites equally fairly to the blacks and was a great president with great values and helped put South Africa on the right path. And I think those qualities in a human being are very rare because he operated without grudge, without ill feeling, and did the best for South Africa, whites and blacks alike. This show has the word disruptive in it, disruptors. What does disruptive mean to you? Uh, disruptive is changing something in a significant way, in a, in a quick way. COVID has been a disruptor. A disruptor. Um, the internet's been a disruptor. I was always a disruptor. I love disruption. Disruption creates opportunity, but it throws thing, you know, it, it just throws in something into not chaos, but into a different state. So a lot of things that I did within the cellular business were disruptive. And uh, I got condemned for that disruption because often the disruption put great deals into the customer's pockets. And nobody liked that because it took margin out of the networks, margin out of the manufacturers. Every time I sold very cheap phones, the whole world wanted a cheaper deal from the manufacturer. They wanted a better airtime commission from the service providers. So I was disrupting all the time. I tried to balance that disruption with not being so disliked that, that I lost the support of my suppliers. But I was always determined to give the customer great value because that's the way you can build a brand and, and gain big volumes. Final question. What one thing do you think is really wrong with the world that you'd like to change? Humanity. Final, final question. Please explain what that means. <laughs> well, you did say short and sharp, yeah, didn't you? it's great. And that humanity's what's wrong. I am very disappointed in humanity. I've been disappointed for 20 years. For the, no, sorry. I've been disappointed since I was 20 years old. I am increasingly disappointed. You know, I think there's a lot of people in the world that are evil. Bigger percentage than we may care to think. But you could actually measure that because you can measure the percentage of people that are in prison. Not necessarily for, a, let's say, for theft. Because I wouldn't call that evil. It's just naughty and wrong criminal. But the people that do horrendous things like uh, rape or beating people up, you know, people that do damage to individuals. You can see what percentage of society that is. There's a lot of people who do damage in other ways through their sociopathic tendencies that have never committed a criminal act, but actually do huge damage to people. And that's another big percentage, probably 10% of society is sociopaths or psychopaths. We don't see it in their normal lives. You only see it when you come in contact with them. And then of the rest, you've got a mix between the very good people who would only ever do something kind for people and other people who are, you know, okay. You know, they live an okay life. Uh, 
when I look at humanity as a whole, it disappoints me. And to have something like Putin's done, in this day and age, across a democratic society, is horrendous. And when those Russians, who are westernised Russians, come onto my social media and condemn my point of view and support Putin, I just think, what is wrong with these people? Where is their sense of justice or judgment? John, where can we follow you? What social media are you on? And so at John Cordwell, C-A-U-D-W-E-L-L on Instagram. Okay, so John D. Cordwell on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube and LinkedIn. And then um, charities. Okay. So Cordwell and Cordwell Properties and Cordwell Collection and Cordwell. Will you be in the Monopolies Commission soon? And Cordwell Lime Co. And 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 and. Yeah, it's actually all on the on your website. I had a good look. Okay. So johncordwell.com and you can find everything there. Cordwellchildren.com. Yeah. That's on the main website anyway. I definitely encourage everyone watching and listening to go and check those out and make your donation and support the cause. John, thanks for inviting us into this amazing, stunning property of yours and giving us all your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Good to meet you.